are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today. If we've never been introduced before, I'm a pastor, a preacher, a Bible teacher, a Bible commentator. Uh, Some people know me from my online work. I have an online Bible commentary that some people find useful, and we endeavor to translate that Bible commentary into many different languages. Uh, People use it in Spanish, Arabic, Chinese, Russian, Italian, Portuguese, German. We're working hard on our translation projects, and we're very excited about that. I am speaking to you for the first time in four weeks here from my home studio on the west coast of California. I'm very pleased to be home. The last three weeks, I've done the program live on the road, uh, the first one uh, in Germany and then the next two in Sweden. But we got back home and then I had to go back out to a conference, a lovely time at a place called Calvary Tucson in Tucson, Arizona with some wonderful believers and uh, had a great time there, connecting with a lot of people, including a few churches that support the work of Enduring Word. And I'm very, very pleased for their support and their partnership in the work that God has given us to do. On Thursday afternoons, uh, at least afternoon here on the West Coast, 12 noon, I come together as often as I can. Occasionally I have to have a substitute, but I come together as often as I can with you, are either live or later video or podcast audience, and talk to you about questions, questions from the Bible, the Christian life, things that are relevant to Christians. Uh, And then uh, I also begin with a lead question, typically something that's either left over from a previous uh, question and answer time, a question we weren't able to get to. Uh, Maybe it's from something that comes in on social media or email or something like that. We look through those questions and try to pick some questions that are most relevant. Now, before I begin this, I do have to say something. Um, you, you folks are very kind, and I'm grateful that uh, some of you email me and ask for biblical advice or answers to questions via email or such. I, I need you to know that the volume of those emails is actually just so overwhelming Uh, that there's no way that I can give adequate answers to each one of them. I apologize for that. I feel terrible. I get to what I can. And especially, I'll get emails where people will give a a long list of questions. and And I just take a look at those and sometimes say, you know, I really don't have two hours out of my day to devote a a long written out answer. Now, sometimes those questions we bring into the Q&A here, because it's not that I don't want to answer them, I just have to be careful with what the best and most strategic use of my time is. But again, I'm, I'm grateful that anybody would ask my perspective or opinion on anything, and so I'm grateful for our time together here on Thursdays. All right, today's lead question comes from Jackie on Facebook, and here's the question. Hi, David. I have a question. I have, if I have been given authority from Jesus to move mountains, to see miracles happen, and so much more, then why, why then, when I pray for such things, aren't they happening? What am I doing wrong? Well, Jackie's asking a great question here, isn't it? 
If Jesus gave us the authority to move mountains and we pray for things and they don't seem to happen, then what's wrong? What's going on wrong in the equation? Well, I want to touch on this whole idea of moving mountains. Let's talk about that together for a few minutes. Jesus spoke of moving mountains in two passages, Matthew chapter 17, and that was in regard to the deliverance of the demon-possessed boy, and then also in Mark chapter 11. Um, By the way, Mark 11 has a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 21. That was in regard to the cursing of the fig tree. I find those two situations kind of interesting in their parallel. In both those situations, number one, Jesus did something remarkable. Uh, He delivered a young boy from demonic possession in Matthew chapter 17. And then in Mark 11 slash Matthew 21, he cursed a fig tree and the next day it was completely dead and withered. So first, Jesus did something remarkable. Second, his disciples marveled at it. Third, Jesus explained how he did the remarkable thing. Fourth, Jesus inspired the faith of his disciples, and he inspired their faith using an obvious metaphor that is the moving of a mountain, a figure of speech. Where I live here on the West Coast of California, I could look out my window right here, and I see, uh, well, you'd either call them high hills or low mountains. I'd say low mountains. It's not a super high elevation, rarely gets snow, but they're more than just hills off in the distance. I've never heard anybody suggest that what Jesus was telling us to do is that I, if I had enough faith, could actually lift that mountain from the the, the bedrock, from the ground, and cast it into the sea. Jesus was obviously using a metaphor, a figure of speech, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So let's take a look at these one by one. Uh, First of all, we have in Matthew chapter 17, the deliverance of the demon-possessed boy. Let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 17, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by fasting and prayer. So here we see Jesus speaking to his disciples, again, after this remarkable miracle of um, delivering this boy who was demon-possessed, Jesus said that his disciples were unable to do it. It's right there in verse 20. He said, it's because of your unbelief. Um, In this battle of spiritual warfare, there, there had to be trust in the Lord God, he who has complete authority over the demons. And then Jesus said something fascinating. He said... I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. Now, Jesus is using some obvious metaphors here. A mustard seed is tiny, tiny, tiny. It's one of the smallest seeds there is. And a mountain, it goes without saying, is big. So what Jesus is saying, using these wonderful metaphors, is that a small amount of faith can accomplish great things. And here's the key. If that small amount of faith is placed in the great and mighty God, friends, little faith can accomplish great things. Now, I'll add a corollary to that. I think great faith can accomplish even greater things. But what matters most 
is not the amount of our faith. I'm not saying that's irrelevant. There's importance to the amount of our faith. But what's more important than the amount of our faith is the object of our faith. Again, notice this. Um, What we put our faith onto is even more important than the amount of faith. You can have great faith in a false thing and it'll get you nowhere. But even a small amount of faith truly placed upon the living God will be able to accomplish great things. Um, Going on, Jesus said, again, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there. Now, from, from my research, from my study on these passages, now, I would say that, that that metaphor, the picture of the mountain drew on a couple things. First of all, it was just an obvious proverbial phrase for something that was impossible. Jesus is telling that small amount of faith can accomplish things that are impossible with man, but they are, of course, possible with God. So it, the moving of a mountain is obviously just a metaphor for accomplishing the impossible. But then it's also something else. According to F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on this passage, he said that Jesus used a phrase that was common among the rabbis of his day. They would call, I'm sort of paraphrasing this, they would call a distinguished rabbi a mountain mover. And Jesus is also telling us that it's faith that brings us into this status, this place of God's work. Okay, so we see that in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 17. Now let's take a look at the Mark passage Uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 20 through 24. Now in the morning as they passed, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter remembering said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in the heart, but believes that those things that he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. So again, we have this uh, parallel situation where Jesus does something remarkable. The disciples marvel. Jesus encourages them to greater faith. Matter of fact, in verse 22 of this account here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus says, have faith in God. Jesus explained that this miracle he did, by the way, uh, you could say, a little, little bit. Of, this is one of the few, let's put it this way. It's one of the few destructive miracles that Jesus ever did. Jesus's mir- miracles were almost always life-giving. He, he wasn't calling down fire from heaven upon the pagans or whatever. The, the miracles of Jesus were primarily life-giving and beneficial. He did a few, what you might call negative or destructive miracles. <laughs> and here, he never did a destructive or negative miracle against a human being. The only two I can think of off the top of my head is here when he cursed the fig tree and it withered and died. And then secondly, when he cast demons into a herd of swine and they perished by running off a cliff into the sea. You you see the the, the parallel that both of those are dealing with non-human subjects. Aren't we glad that Jesus did not use uh, the miraculous power uh, that he had to, to do destructive things? But Jesus explained that this miracle has happened through faith in God. Jesus made it very clear that prayer must be offered in faith and faith must be in God. Faith is trust, confidence, and reliance upon someone or something. Now, when Jesus explains 
whoever says to this mountain, be removed, he's drawing on that figure of speech that we saw previously in Matthew chapter 17. It's a figure of speech describing an insurmountable problem. And Jesus is saying that as we believe, God can overcome any obstacle. Now, once you notice a few things, this promise of God's answer to the prayer made in faith was made to the disciples. Jesus did not say this to the multitude. So this isn't like a carte blanche promise that Jesus gives sort of the power of positive thinking to the whole world. No, this was a promise made to disciples. Nor should we interpret this promise in Mark chapter 11. I think it's also parallel in uh, Matthew chapter 21. We should not take this to mean that if you pray hard enough and really believe God is obligated to answer your prayer no matter what you ask for. That kind of faith is not faith in God. It's faith in yourself. It's faith in your own wisdom. It's faith in feelings. True faith in God also includes an element of surrender unto God and his will. See, Jackie, I want you to know that you're not failing at something. If you pray for a miracle and the miracle doesn't happen. Now, I want to be honest with you, Jackie. It could be that you lack faith. That could be. Look, let's be very honest about this. Sometimes we lack faith when we pray. And the problem is we don't really trust God. We don't really believe him. But you can't draw the conclusion that if a miracle doesn't happen, then it is to be blamed on a lack of faith because it may be that the miracle was not the will of God. Always remember this. The purpose of prayer is not to twist God into accomplishing our will. The purpose of prayer is for us to align with the will of God and in partnership with him to ask that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Towards that end, I want to read to you a verse from 1 John chapter 5, actually two verses. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Look at these verses together, speaking about prayer. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Do you see what he's saying right there? What God is telling us in this passage is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God wants us to ask in prayer. Matter of fact, God wants us to ask anything. Now, again, the anything there isn't anything you dream of. You know, God, you know, satisfy my every lust and desire. No, forget all that. No, it means there's nothing that you can't talk to God about. We should pray over everything. As Philippians chapter four, verse six says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. But here's the key. We should ask, as it says here in verse 14, according to his will. It's very easy, Jackie, dear sister, it's very easy for us to only be concerned with our will before God. And 
sometimes to even have a fatalistic view regarding his will. Well, look, he's going to accomplish his will with or without my prayers anyway, won't he? But God wants us to see and to discern his will through his word and to pray his will into action. I wonder if when the Apostle John wrote this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, I wonder if he did not have in mind what Jesus spoke as recorded in John 15, verse 7. Let me read these words to you. Jesus said this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You see, when we abide in Jesus, living in him day by day, then our will becomes more and more aligned with his will. And you can ask what you desire. And more and more, we will ask according to his will. Then we see answered prayer. Now, sometimes people ask, if something is God's will, then why doesn't he just accomplish it? Why doesn't he just do it apart from our prayers? Why does God wait, at least sometimes, to accomplish things until we pray? I'll tell you one reason why. I don't know if I know all the reasons, but I'll get to tell you one reason. It's because God has appointed us to work with him. This is just as 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says, that we are workers together with him. God wants us to work with him. And this means bringing our will and agenda into alignment with his. God wants us to care about the things he cares about. And he wants us to care about them enough to pray passionately about them. You see, friends, prayer should be so much more than casting our wishes to heaven. Prayer should be rooted in an understanding of God's will and promises according to his word. And then we pray these promises into action. You you could say that for every prayer request, we should either mentally or vocally ask, what possible reason do I have to think that God will answer this prayer? And we should be able to answer that question from God's word. The most powerful prayers in the Bible are always prayers which understand the will of God and ask him to perform it. God is delighted by this. Now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to ask for something that God has not promised. But when we realize that we're asking for something that God has not promised, then we need to align our asking. Sometimes we just don't know, and we do the best we can. So, Jackie, if you're praying for a miracle and praying in faith, and the miracle doesn't happen, then I would say that it's either not in God's will or God's timing for that miracle to happen. Let's always remember that. (laughs) The timing of God is just as important as what his will is. There are many things that we have asked of God, and we felt that we knew the timing precisely. But of course, God knew the timing far better than we did. One more thing uh, to bring up on this point, Jackie. Remember that the Bible describes something called the gift of faith. You can find reference to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. You see, faith is an essential part of every Christian's life, 
But there is a supernatural gift of faith. It is mentioned among the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It's something beyond saving faith, <laughs> redeeming faith. This is the gift of faith, which I would regard it as a unique ability to trust God against all circumstances. Listen, when Peter walked out of the boat onto the water, I would say that at that moment, he had the gift of faith. I think he didn't walk in that gift very long, but he had it. There are times, there are places that we see in the Bible and perhaps in our own personal experience where God gives us a supernatural ability to believe in the present moment. So that's what I would uh, put that idea on there, Jackie. You see, Jackie, I, I don't know that you're doing anything, if I could say this, wrong in your prayers. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I know for certain, you know, I mean, I'm not up close and close to it. But, but maybe you're just simply misunderstanding your will for God's will. Maybe you're just misunderstanding your timing for God's timing. So just remember these things, please. Number one, the purpose of prayer is not to accomplish our will, but God's will. Number two, using the Bible, we should try to understand God's will the very best we can. Number three, with the best understanding of God's will that we have, we pray in faith. And then, if we have misunderstood God's will in any way or the timing of his will, then we trust God to take care of that. We believe that God can work miracles when we pray according to his will. And then just the last little caveat I would make, we also want to give room for the gift of faith. Well, Jackie, again, thank you for your question. I hope that answer is helpful. There's so much more that could be said about this great subject of prayer, but let me get back to this and uh, let's take a look at our questions coming in on the live chat. Andrea is our moderator today, and uh, the first question here, um, well, first of all, someone's asking if we can pray for Ukraine. You know what? And I'd be delighted to do that. Maybe if you're watching live now, you can join me right now in prayer. Uh, if you're watching this on video later, you can also just pause for a moment and join me in prayer. You see, I, I believe that it's meaningful and it's powerful when God's people agree together in prayer. So I'm going to pray, and, and I hope I'm praying in a way that you can agree with right now, and we'll pray for God to do some great things in this. Father in heaven, we pray uh, for the people and the leaders of the nation of Ukraine. We pray that you would give them supernatural grace and wisdom and strength, and especially we pray for believers, for Christians, for your people in that nation, and we pray that you would make them shining lights to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ in this time of great calamity and warfare. Lord, we pray, too, that you would move upon the nations attacking Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, whoever it would be, Lord. And we pray that you would move upon their leaders to work to a peaceful resolution and that you would grant to their Christians wisdom and passion in prayer to properly pray for their leaders and to live as citizens in their country. 
But Lord, we are reminded that in Ukraine, it's not the only place where there's war in the world right now. There's wars in Africa. There's wars in the Middle East. There's wars in Asia. There's wars in other places of the world, Lord. We are a sin-soaked collection of humanity. And we pray, God, that you would work in and through your people and that you would work powerfully by the Holy Spirit to bring peace to bring just resolution to these causes, to comfort the hurting, and to show the triumph and the love of Jesus Christ in it all. Do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for that uh, encouragement to prayer. And let me go on to the next question that we have here from our TWR360 audience. Hey, I want to welcome our TWR360 audience. TWR's stands for Trans World Radio, and it's that great collection of resources, both on shortwave radio, uh, but then also uh, online at their website, TWR360, uh, where they're reaching the world with the gospel in a wonderful ministry that's been around a long time. Anyway, from TWR360, David asks this question. He says, I have a friend who recently switched from a non-denominational evangelical church to an American Orthodox church. I decided to research what the Orthodox Church believes, and I attended a couple Sunday services with my friend. The rituals don't bother me, but I'm seeing some traditions and rules that do. Should I be concerned for my friend as a Christian believer? Does the Orthodox Church preach heresy? Is it sinful to join? Okay, David, here's the issue, is that when you talk about the Orthodox Church, I mean those Eastern communions, the Orthodox communions, you are talking about a broad range of denominations, of church traditions, of local congregations, of generations. I think it's impossible to uh, generalize as a whole and say the Orthodox Church is this, the Orthodox Church is that. Of course, there's some general things you can say, but really it has most to do with the individual congregation. Look, I'll say this. Somebody can definitely find Jesus in the Orthodox Church. If somebody wants to put their focus on Jesus and worship Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus and follow him with their life, they can do it in the Orthodox Church. I don't have any doubt about that. So I think that we can understand that and just kind of flow with that basic idea. Um, so we can have that uh, uh, simple idea that we have this uh, mountain-moving faith. Um, let me just cut back to that. So I, I think we have this very definite idea that uh, someone can find Jesus in the Orthodox faith. Now, I I'll say that there are many traditions, there are many um, I don't know, aspects of the liturgy, of the services of the Orthodox Church that do not resonate with me at all. Just not at all. So um, for me, it's not a meaningful place to meet with Jesus. But look, somebody can go to a church and have it be an outworking of vain tradition no matter what their church tradition is. Um, so it it's really has to be an emphasis 
on the individual seeking after Jesus Christ as he's revealed in his word. So am I uncomfortable with some of the orthodox emphasis on some of their liturgy and iconography? Am I saying that word correctly? Their use of icons? Yes, I am. But again, I know that somebody can find Jesus there. So um, that's the issue, I would say. Is your friend, David, using their time and their presence in the Orthodox Church to press in to Jesus? If they're doing that, okay, then I think that that can be okay. But um, if they seem lost in the traditions, if they seem lost in the liturgy, without it really pressing them towards Jesus, then I think there could be some concern. So um, let me say this in closing about the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church represents the majority of Christians that come from the East, and especially historically, Eastern European countries, Russia, uh, you know, all the Eastern European countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, all, all these particular areas, these Orthodox communions. Friends, in the 20th century, it is said that more people were martyred for their faith in the 20th century. In other words, they were killed for being Christians. Maybe there was a political motivation. Maybe it was just a genocidal thing. Maybe, but, but more people were killed for being Christians in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Okay, now, if that is the case, if that is true, then understand that it was the Eastern Church that bore the brunt of that. And for that alone, our Orthodox brothers and sisters deserve commendation. Uh, They deserve uh, gratitude on behalf of believers. Okay, let me go to the next question here from Race. This comes from YouTube. says, hello from Alabama. My question is, what was God doing in eternity past before creation? Hey, you know, really, that is a great question, Royce, race, I should say. And let me say, I, I can give to you two things that God was doing in eternity past before creation. Uh, two, a, a few is what I mean. Well, first of all, God was planning a plan of redemption and, and preparing for it in every aspect. So God was planning a plan of redemption from eternity past. That's one thing that God was doing. Um, But another thing that God was doing was enjoying a relationship of love and fellowship between the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Again, one God in three persons. We're not tritheists. We don't believe in three gods, but we do believe in one God in three persons. In some way, that's honestly difficult for us to comprehend. In the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, the person of God the Holy Spirit, there was rich and meaningful fellowship with Jesus Christ, uh, among the members of the Trinity, I should say. We know this because Jesus, in his great prayer in John chapter 17, referred back to the glory that he enjoyed with God the Father before the creation of the world which is really just a um, staggering, staggering statement. So uh, God was um, doing whatever he did with the angelic beings. You know, the angelic beings, we really don't know much about their origin. 
maybe there's an entire backstory to the angelic beings that we don't know. We know nothing about. We'll learn about it in eternity future. So there's aspects of what God was doing, but uh, we know that God was planning and, and setting the groundwork. And I say setting the groundwork literally because it speaks of the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Um, God was setting in motion his amazing plan of the ages and enjoying fellowship between the persons of the Trinity. That's what I would say, race. That's what God was doing before anything existed. Okay, another question from YouTube. Christy, Christina from Canada. Greetings to you, Christine. She says, asks, is Lent biblical? Christine, I can give you a very quick answer to that. No, it's not biblical. No, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. Many of the practices that people do during Lent uh, are fine, are biblical. Special times of prayer, special times of devotion, special ways to sort of mortify the flesh, whether it be a fast or another form of self-denial. Those things in and of themselves are biblical, but the Bible nowhere prescribes a season of 40 days before Easter Sunday for Christians to do these things. That's purely a creation of Christian tradition. Look, let's be honest about this. It's just not in the Bible at all. It's Christian tradition. Now, again, the practices that many people do during Lent are in and of themselves biblical, but the practice itself of the 40 days, doing something in these 40 days before Easter, it's not biblical one bit. So here's what you have to remember about Lent. You have to remember the principle of freedom in Jesus Christ. People are absolutely free in Jesus to observe Lent if they want to. And they are absolutely free in Jesus to not observe Lent if they want to. This isn't something that's commanded or prescribed by Scripture. We have freedom in Jesus Christ either way. So, if you want to do it, great, do it unto the Lord. Don't think it makes you any better or superior to any other brother or sister, but just do it unto the Lord. We have freedom in Jesus Christ either way. Hope that's helpful for you there, Christina. Okay, uh, next question comes again from David, not David from TBR360. This is David from YouTube who asks, why do some Christian scholars regard the birth of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter one and two to be non-historical? Why would the Holy Spirit through Matthew write about Jesus's birth only for it to be an allegory? Well, okay, David, let me say, the phrase Christian scholars is somewhat loaded. Let me explain why. What do we mean by the phrase? Do we mean a scholar who happens to be a Christian? Do we mean a scholar of things Christians are interested in? Do we mean a scholar who is thoroughly Christian in their scholarship? I'm a little wary of just the phrase Christian scholarship because I think that it's, it needs to be more carefully defined, to be honest. So I would understand those 
who deny the historical nature of the Gospels in particular to actually be outside the bounds of the Christian faith. I'm very serious about it. I know that's extreme. I'll admit that it's extreme. But when we go through the clear historical narratives of the scriptures, and again, I, I understand they would push back and say, well, it's not so clear and historical. They, they would say it's allegory. There's a great deal of work done on this uh, by a scholar, a professor at a college here in Santa Barbara named Robert Gundry, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew saying that these things in Matthew didn't actually happen Matthew was using rabbinic forms of literature to make up stories and apply them to Jesus. And and I would just reject that in very strenuous terms. What it's just saying is that the historicity of the biblical record just doesn't even matter. It's just the story that it tells. Now, as for why some scholars or students of the Bible do this kind of thing, Well, for example, in Gundry's case, he took a look at the stories of the Magi in Matthew, the visit of the Magi to Jesus, and he saw the story of the visit of the shepherds in Luke, and he decided the story of the shepherds was legitimate, and what Matthew did was he did a a, a Jedi rabbi mind trick with uh, the text in Matthew And he kind of transformed the visit of the shepherds into the visit of the Magi to fulfill Old Testament scriptures. But but again, in Gundry's case, he said, well, I'm not really lying, or Matthew wasn't really lying because everybody knew he was doing this. I, I, I would push back against that. I think this is a historical reductionism that's very dangerous. So basically, um, the reason why oftentimes they do it is they do it because they are uncomfortable with some of the supernatural elements that are in the Gospels. Sometimes scholars do this because they feel uh, that uh, there's contradictory matter in the Gospels, and so they want to resolve what they claim are contradictions. That's why I, I would just strenuously disagree with that approach. Now, I'm the first one to admit, I I spoke about it in our lead question. The Bible is filled with metaphor, with um, figures of speech. I I don't believe that Jesus, I'm looking out to the mountains out here to my right, out my window. I I don't believe that Jesus meant that we would actually cause a mountain to be uprooted from the ground and cast into the sea. He's using figures of speech and metaphors. So we, we understand that the Bible uses such language. But when it tells us that things happened in history, they happened. It's really just that simple. So, um, again, as to why they do it, it's either to excuse what they would think are grandiose claims of the supernatural or to resolve what they think are contradictions. And I think that both of them are not worth doing. Thank you for that question there, David. Next question comes from, oh, wow, that's a lot of letters here, uh, from PKWJTW. It says, hi, Pastor David from Texas. 
we're reading through Proverbs, and it seems a lot of the chapters repeat the same themes many times. Avoid harlots, evil friends. It's repeated for emphasis, do you think? Well, yes. But again, um, there's a sense in which Proverbs wasn't written just to read through chapter by chapter, but to sort of take with you and to, to meditate, to chew on the verses, uh, maybe a couple Proverbs a day. And if someone does that, then it's going to be weeks until they run across things of the same theme. There are people I know who have taught the book of Proverbs and they teach it thematically. In other words, they get all the Proverbs that relate to friendship, all the um, Proverbs that relate to sexual immorality, all the Proverbs that relate to uh, the use of money, and they'll collect them all together and teach on those themes from the book of Proverbs. I think that could be a very fruitful way to study the book of Proverbs. But yes, um, the repetition would generally be for emphasis, but also for a shedding of a slightly different light on these subjects. <laughs> and it's also this. Does it not remind us here of our tremendous need to be reminded of things? You know, you, you and I can come back again and again and think we know this and think we know that, but over and over again, we need to be reminded of things. You know, friends, that's something I would really want to encourage you with right now. Uh, you might be thinking that what we really need in your life is a, um, a new revelation, some, some kind of new revelation from God. Listen, God's given you a wonderful revelation. And God will guide you providentially along the way. Don't worry about that. He'll, he'll guide you as you need to be guided. But give your attention to what God has already revealed. Okay, next question comes from YouTube, um, from BA34. I won't read the whole name, but just BA34. I'm having trouble with intrusive thoughts. Any advice? Well, dear BA, um, this is a difficult matter of uh, sanctification. And, and let me tell you something. God bless you for engaging this battle. You know, many people simply completely deny or neglect the battle that goes on in the mind of the believer. And this we should not do. We should continue on in this battle regarding uh, the mind, regarding our thoughts, and do what it says in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. So dealing with our thought life is sort of a, uh, I don't know, I don't want to sound weird about it, but a little bit of a higher ground in our sanctification or holiness process, but it's an important ground for us to walk upon. Now, practically, what can you do? Well, first of all, don't be discouraged when the same thought keeps intruding again and again. You're not doing something wrong. Just keep battling back again and again. Um, this is just the nature. People struggle with thoughts of hatred or bitterness. And that's just one example. There's a lot of bad thinking that we can have to deal with. But let's just consider for a moment thoughts of hatred or bitterness towards others. And um, we can lay them before the Lord and come before him, ask God to, to deal with these things and confess them before God and be free of them. And then the next day, hey, sometimes the next hour they come back. It doesn't mean 
you failed to do it right the first time. But these are just things that we have to deal with continually. So don't be discouraged because of the repetitive nature of this battle. That's the first thing I would tell you. The second thing I would tell you is, um, and again, I'm not trying to say this as a cure-all, but it is this. It's not a cure-all, but it is a help-all. It'll help you in every way. I'm not saying it's going to cure everything, but it will help you memorize Scripture. You know, the best thing you can do is saturate your mind with the truth of God's Word. Remember that phrase? I always think of it because we used to sing a song like it in the King James Version. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You want perfect peace? Keep your mind on God and his word. Make scripture memorization, scripture meditation a priority. And again, I want to stress, I'm not bringing that before you as a cure-all. No, you're still going to have to deal with intrusive thoughts. But it is a help all. It will help you in that battle. So those are two quick things I would tell you there. And I hope that's helpful for you. Number one, don't be discouraged that it is such a battle. Uh, Number two, memorize scripture, meditate upon scripture. And then number three, realize that this is... um, this is good ground that you're fighting on. God bless you for doing that. All right, let me move on to the next question from Ed. Ed asks a question, excuse me, and says, is it proper to have communion at home when watching a service online because you cannot be in person? All right, Ed, I'm going to give you my answer, which let me be right up front and acknowledge will be different from the answer that people from other church traditions give. But you're asking me, so I'm going to give you my answer. Although I was recognizing and respecting those brothers and sisters from other church traditions who might believe differently from me on this. But I I would say, yes, it is proper. Now, I don't think it's ideal Ideally, communion is practiced in the community of God's people coming together for services of worship. That is the setting kind of put forth as normal, or if you want to use a fancy, normative in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about communion. That's the most that it speaks about in the epistles about communion. So, That's like the ideal setting. But when we are prohibited from doing that, or in addition to doing that, I don't see any problem with a husband and wife having communion at the table at home, with a family having communion, the husband, the father there, as the priest of the home leading the family in communion. Again, not to exclude the Lord's table in the congregational setting, but in addition to it, or when it's impossible for whatever reason for Christians to gather. I've thought that sometimes I should make a video. Maybe maybe I will. You know, I think about a lot of videos I should make. But a video to simply lead somebody in communion uh, at home. Uh, 
Again, not not to substitute what a person would do at church, uh, unless that substitution was absolutely necessary for some kind of medical or whatever practical reason. There was no way they could attend the worship of God's people, um, the the communion of God's people in worship, but uh, in addition to. So, Ed, I I think you said, is it proper? Yes, I, I think it is proper. Barry asks, what is my favorite worship hymn? Well, Barry, uh, I tell you what, I, I have several favorite hymns. One of them would probably be that, that amazing classic, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's hard to get any better than that, isn't it? I mean, Holy, Holy, Holy. What possibly could be better than that great hymn? So I think about that a lot, uh, that hymn and the, the amazing words, the amazing uh, text that goes along with it, how God-focused and glorifying to God it is. So yeah, I, I'll just throw that one out there. Holy, holy, holy. Um, there's other great hymns, of course, but that, that's, uh, that's right up there towards the top of my list. Okay, uh, let me go on. Uh, another YouTube question from Grump. Gee, I don't know if that describes your personality or what, but uh, hey, Grump. Okay, here we go. Uh, How can a new believer, me, go about getting grounded in scripture? I'm worried about getting too influenced by certain theological leanings. Well, okay. Um, Grump, first of all, let me say, God bless you. Welcome to God's family. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're a new believer that you're somewhat new in your following of Jesus Christ. Welcome to the family of God. And uh, I don't know how long it's been. Maybe it's been a few months. Maybe it's been a few years. But uh, I'm very pleased that you count yourself among and can be counted among the disciples of Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus, those who properly take the name Christian. Now, how do you get grounded in Scripture? Well, Grump, let me just suggest that the most pointed way to do it is uh, to read your Bible. Now, I, I know that sounds simple. That might even sound trite. And please, I apologize if it sounds trite to you. But there's no substitute for the simple reading of the Bible. Now, I, I know, especially in the modern age, there are some people who would rather listen to an audio Bible. Okay, that, that's better than reading. But but I don't think it absolutely replaces reading. I I... I wouldn't be excited about a Christian who never read their Bible, but only listened to it. Um, But anyway, read your Bible and think about it as you read it. If you need good Bible study helps, they're out there. Grump, maybe my Bible commentary would be something that would be helpful for you. You can find it, EnduringWord.com. Or if you just search for my name on the internet, you'll probably find it pretty quick. David Guzik, G-U-Z-I-K, EnduringWord.com. Just read through a Bible passage and look at my comments on it. Uh, Or or the comments or the teaching of another good, reliable teacher. Someone who doesn't seem to have a doctrinal axe to grind. What I mean by that metaphor of an axe to grind is they want to bring everything in the Bible back to that issue again and again and again. Um, Try to find teachers who, to the best of their ability, will let the text of Scripture speak for itself. But there's really no substitute 
for reading and thinking about the Bible yourself. And uh, just reading. But now, when you read the Bible, there's going to be some things you don't understand. And, And let me say, there's two ways to read the Bible. Obviously, there's many ways, but there's two categories. I'll give you one category. One is to read the Bible and don't go further until you understand it. Now, that, that's one way to do it, but that, that's not the approach that I normally suggest to people. I would say, when you come to something you don't understand, you just keep on going. Just keep on going. Yeah, you'll read it again. The next time you read that passage, you'll probably understand a little bit. The third time you read that passage, you'll probably read it a little better, but just make regular Bible reading a normal part of your Christian life and find some good preachers and teachers that you can trust and rely on. Look, I... I'd like to think that my own teaching uh, and my own Bible commentary is helpful for that. But look, I understand that uh, there's no one person that appeals to or connects with everybody. So believe me, not going to hurt my feelings if you find somebody else more helpful. But but try to find people that don't seem to have what you would call doctrinal hobby horses. Everything is brought around to a particular point. All right, next question comes from Freya, again from our YouTube channel, uh, Freya asks, why did God tell Balaam to go with the Moabites, but then got angry when he went? Numbers chapter 22, verse 20. Okay, Freya, I would recommend that you look up my commentary. Again, EnduringWord.com. You can find it there, the commentary in Numbers chapter 22. But I, I don't mind explaining to you the, 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 the basic idea, but just for some greater depth, I would refer you to my commentary. Look, the basic idea is this. God told Balaam, don't go. But Balaam was stubborn. And he sort of demanded, if I could use that phrase, demanded from God, uh, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, Hey, I really want to do this. God, can I do this? And basically, God uh, allowed Balaam to do what his sinful heart wanted him to do. Uh, wanted to do, not wanted him to do. And, and really, God's direction of Balaam saying, go ahead and go with him, was a concession to Balaam's sinfulness, and it was a way for God to bring judgment upon Balaam, which he eventually did. And so really, that's the way that I would phrase it there for you, Freya. God did this with Balaam because of um, uh, he was giving Balaam over to judgment, and because Balaam refused what God uh, previously said. Let me just give a little bit of an analogy here. It, so, sometimes, you know, oh God, would you give me this? God, would you give me this? God says, no, it's not for you. Oh God, please give it. Oh, and God says, no, it's not for you. Oh God, please give it to me. And finally, sometimes God will say, fine, go ahead, take it. See how it works out for you. And there's a sense in which that's what God did with Balaam. Okay, I think this is going to be our last question here from Marielle. Marielle from Facebook asks, is it okay to ask God to send us a dream or a sign before making an important decision in our lives? Sometimes I even read some verses that could talk about my situation, but I don't know that the answer for some some specific and personal decisions in my life, such as the place where I should live or work. Hey, Marielle, let me give you my take on that. By the way, Marielle, I think that's a very good question, and thank you for asking it. Is it okay to ask God to send us a dream or a sign? I would give you this quick answer like this. No. Now, 
Do I believe that God could give somebody a dream or a sign? Yes. But I don't think it's right for us to ask for it or to seek after it. Asking for it, seeking after it, I think opens us up to some paths of deception that are better left closed. So if God chooses to do something like that, then let that be God's business. You see, when we're asking for it, when we're looking for it, I think we open ourselves up either to create it within ourselves or to um, just go our own way with something, to, uh, to, uh, to just sort of create it or to, to pursue things that we shouldn't pursue. So if you want to hear the voice of God and have his guidance, read his word, live out your Christian life, and he will guide you. And maybe along the way, God may do something supernatural to direct you, a dream or a sign or something like that. Okay, maybe he will, but I wouldn't ask for it and I wouldn't seek after it. Just uh, ask God for the discernment if he should give you such a thing. So Mary, I hope that's helpful for you there. Okay, uh, that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. I got to say, it feels good being back here in uh, my uh, studio here in the back garden of my home. And uh, I'll be here next week. I hope you can join us next Thursday. Come with your questions. If we didn't get to your question today, I apologize, but we'll make record of it and hopefully we'll get to it later. I'm so pleased that you could join us today. God bless you and thank you for joining us. See you next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.